Rod Builders, save the date. On April 12th, 13th, and 14th, Angler's Resource will host the Mastering Rod Building Seminar in Foley, Alabama. The event will feature a series of presentations by some of the biggest names in the rod building community, along with vendors, live music, free food, and even a keg of beer. The event's free to attend, but entry is limited to the first 150 spot people who sign up. So to reserve your spot, visit anglersresource.net slash seminar. That's anglersresource.net slash seminar and fill out the registration form on the Hope page. See you there. All right. Welcome back, everybody, to this very special saltwater fly rod edition of the Mastering Rod Building Podcast, where I once again have the great pleasure of interviewing a luminary in the sport and someone who is an absolute subject matter expert and also someone that I consider a friend. Uh, Mr. Herb Ladenheim. So Herb has an MS in geology, but that's not very exciting compared to all the stuff he's been doing since then, which is he uh, he was originally the fly rod blank distributor for CTS in North America and now has been the distributor for everything CTS for, I don't know, at least 10 years now because that's how long we've been doing business. You may know him. He's done extensive good work uh, in support of Stripers Online, Casting for Recovery, and uh, is actually a personal rod builder to Chico Fernandez. So uh, that will probably make you sit up in your chair because if you know anything about saltwater fly fishing, you know that there's a very short list of Lefty Cray and Chico Fernandez and Stu Apt and, uh, you know, Flip Pallet. And and so to, to be the personal rod builder for one of those guys is a really big deal. So please welcome on behalf of CTS uh, in North America, Mr. Herb Leidenheim. How are you, Herb? Hey, Bill. I'm fine. Thank you. Thank you for having this. Oh, man, I'm delighted you're here. So, uh, you know, we're going to have a really good discussion today because I think you you just have spent so much time and know so much about saltwater fly rods. Now, we are going to talk specifically about striper fly rods, but I think you have a lot more to offer than that. So we won't we won't limit it just to that. But before I get too far into it, my my inaugural question, I ask everybody, uh, how in the world did you get into fishing and, and how did you get into rod building in the first place? Yeah, how much time do we have? As much as you want, sir. Okay. My father used to take me, believe it or not, for herring fishing on the Cross Bay Boulevard Bridge on in, in Queens. Yeah. And um, that was a time where there, there was no aluminum foil. So you used to peel the the, the foil off the back of cig- uh, cigarette packs. Yeah. Inside a cigarette pack had foil on it. So then we used to tie it on hooks and drop it down off the bridge and, and jig. And we used to pick up herring oh, wow. that, we would take, that we would take home and, and pickle there you go. Interesting part of the story is that I did it for my son many, 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 well, decades later with my son. And I wrote an article for the uh, Long Island Daily Press, and they, they published it. Uh, Frank Keating was the uh, the fishing editor back yeah. then, and uh, he got a kick out of it. So, so sort of a, a generational repeat, if you will. Absolutely. That's awesome. Yeah. So Herb, Herb grew up on Long Island. So uh, he, yeah, he wasn't vacationing to that bridge in Queens. Uh, he, he was making the daily commute. That's fascinating. And so uh, how you, you were young when you started building rods, you were in your twenties, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. But then I, I had, I knew nothing about shaping grips. So I used a rasp and, and, and sandpaper and they were all uh, spinning rods on, on Fenwick blanks. Yeah. Well, Fenwick was kind of the, so that would have been fiberglass blanks originally, right? Yes, and then, exactly. and then also you, you, have you been building continuously that whole time? No. Okay. And I hadn't been fishing continue, continually the whole time. Okay. Uh, my, my, my wife and I were happened to be in uh, Watch Hill, Rhode Island. 
Okay. And which was one of our favorite places. And there was a, a Watchill uh, fly fishing store right around the corner from uh, the restaurant we would go to. So yeah. I walked in and I bought uh, an Orvis, I think it was a Matrix, a nine-foot, nine, nine, nine nine-weight uh, Matrix, and, and a reel, Orvis reel. And I fished that for a while, then sold that and went to Sage, of course, yeah. which everybody does. And I, I used to live on... on uh, Martha's Vineyard on a boat for about five months a year. Yeah, so I used to fly fish, believe it or not, for striped bass from the from the from the uh, the the, the uh, sailboat, which was very unusual. Hey, whatever by any means necessary, right? Whatever works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I would have um, been that kid trying to fly fish off the sailboat if I could have just gotten on a sailboat. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they didn't let they don't let guys like me on sailboats. That's like kind of Tony, you know. My my first um, striper fishing would be uh also as a teenager in little neck bay in queens my yep. uncle one of my uncles used to take me used to fish at night build a fire keep warm and oh, use wow. uh, sandworms for bait with fish finder rigs oh yeah uh, i don't know if you've ever handled uh, uh sandworms but they have big black pincers right and they they bite you if you're not if you're not careful right and uh, we well, had well that's time. why you bring that's why you bring a nephew fishing so he can handle the sandworms, <laughs> right? Your uncle's a that's, smart guy. That's right. I had uh, an old cane surf rod with oh, two yeah. guides on it, two guys in a tip top. Wow. The guys, the guides were uh, agate guides. It was a two piece rod, but it broke at the just above the handle, mm-hmm. and that you put it together metal metal furrow, uh-huh. and that was my, that was my uh, my surf rod at that well, time for stripers. Well, you're using slightly, uh, slightly fancier and more capable gear now, aren't you? Slightly, yes. Yeah. Yes. So Herb has had this passion for striped bass fly fishing, uh, and you fish for other things. I know you you used to fish out of a skiff uh, for fluke, right? What we would call flounder down here. You also, your son, you'd take fishing, you know, for tautog and and you know various sea bass and things on the on the rocks, but. Um, it's an interesting story. So you you got into fly fishing specifically later in life when you were like fifty five, right? Uh, exactly. Okay. So tell me that story. So you had you had always fished and you had built rods, but you you had gotten away from fishing or away from fly fishing or what's the what, what is uh, the away, you don't fish very much on a, on a sailboat. Yeah. And um, I I don't know what got me, but I decided to try fly fishing and. Uh, I got it. I got the fly rod, and I, yeah. I got pretty good at it. And as as it goes with everybody else, you you escalate from one rod to another to another, sure. as you know, and and lines, of course. And the first introduction I had to fly fishing for striped bass was on Cape Cod. Okay. Uh, I went with my wife for a week. Uh, the guide at the time was Danny Marini. Okay. Uh, he was too busy to to accommodate me, so he had his son, Danny Marini Jr., take me on his boat. And we were fishing, and, and I, I was using a sinking line, and you sort of lob that line out, right. and then the boat would move back on with the current, and you'd flake a line out as you move back. Yeah. And then you'd come up tight to the reel and start to strip. Well, I hooked the fish. Now, he, he was very particular on the drag setting. I hooked this fish. And he just took off, or she just took off. Real was screaming, and he was yelling at me. Danny Marini Jr. was screaming at me. Did you touch that drag? Did you touch that drag? I said, no. Anyway, got him in, and it was the biggest bass that he had, that had, was caught on his boat to date. 
Oh wow! It, he he thought that's why he thought you're losing so much line is yeah. that you had you touched the drag. Yeah, yeah. And he slipped the boat over this over the gunwale. It was laying on the on the sole of the of the, uh, of the boat. Uh, would not let me pick it up. Would not let me take a picture of it. Oh, wow. uh, because there were other people around, and he did not want to tip off mm. where his hot spots were. Yep. Yeah. So it was a big bass. I don't know if it could have been 10, 15 pounds, but it was a big bass. And um, he swore me to secrecy regarding the the the, the fly we were using. <laughs> and it happened to be about the thickness of your thumb. All well, they didn't they didn't have uh, uh, hollow flies back then. Or right. Bulkhead back then that easy to cast right this, this thing was a son of a gun to cast yeah but he's yeah. swarming to secrecy and you're actually the first person that i'm sharing it with many well, many many years well, later we're honored hey i won't tell anybody there's okay. only there's thousands it, it, and thousands it, it, of listeners they will all keep the secret no, and, if, I, and hopefully marini's not listening <laughs> it was called the cigar minnow oh well that's it a good bait. The size of the cigar yeah tough to cast. so then after that i got we started to go back to cape cod every year uh, sometimes for two weeks. Right. And uh, I met a guide. I, I did. I, I wanted to fish from the shore, from sand, basically. So I met a guide by the name of George Ryan. Okay. I don't know if you ever heard his name. Big time fish, fisherman in uh, in Cape Cod, but strictly. Okay. Never boat, strictly uh, sand fishing. Uh. And uh, we would go all over the place. He'd take me all over the place. And one time he took me to the Pete the Provincetown Flats. I don't know if you ever heard of them. P-Town, because we stayed yep. in P-Town. We love, we love the town. So P-Town Flats are just what is described as flat. At, at, at dead low, there is no water at all. Oh, wow. No water. All the bait gets flushed off. Right. And um, if, as, as the ebb st- starts, you would wade out slowly to what we, what we, we call the, the P-Town drop-off. Okay. And you could be standing in three feet of water, and 10 feet in front of you is 50 feet of water. It drops off precipitously, <clears throat> and as, as the as the, the ebb continues and the, the, the bait just gets washed off totally, washed off the flat, the, ba- the bass are just sitting there waiting. So, Bill, I'm talking 50, 60, 70 fish days. Oh, and wow. Not days. I'm talking in an hour and a half. Oh. So, interesting, I was fishing with George once, and he's to my left, and I see he's changing his flight, changing his flight. I said, George, what are you doing? He says, I want to see what they're not going to hit. <laughs> And man he after my own nothing. heart yeah he found nothing that they wouldn't do oh wow what a magical were, day yeah, yeah. And, and you're fishing there and the the, the and 800 pound seals are breaking water all around you oh gosh yeah because they're munching on the stripers or munching on the sand deals whatever's coming in right now, this was before the great whites were there yeah so you know when we started to wade at that on the outgoing we'd be up to the top of our waders right because you're literally wading a mile to get wow. to where you want to the drop off, and and if you can't, if it's on, a, if it's a cloudy day, you can't see the drop off. You know you're there because the sand starts to get soft. Yeah. So it's, it, it, you're losing your footing. So you you know you want to back up. Yeah. You don't want to you don't want to go sliding down into that thing. Yeah, I thought you were going to say you wouldn't know you were to the drop off until your hat floated. <laughs> no, 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 no. So, I've done that once or twice. <laughs> and the other way to fish the P-Town Flats is on the incoming. Uh, you wait till the water is about up to your shins. And then you you wait out. And as the water comes in, it gets up to your, your higher than your shins. You start casting gurglers. Uh, and the yep. bass, as they come onto the flats, 
they just gobble these up. And yep. uh, that's the other way to fish the pitan flats. Oh, so you got one one technique for the water falling out and then the ebb tide and one for the incoming tide and the water coming up. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's all. I can't imagine catching those fish on gurglers in skinny water. That must be some spectacular eats. The, the gurgler, for those of you who may not be fly tire, I think everybody probably fly fishes in saltwater knows what a gurgler is, but it's a renowned Jack Gart side pattern that yeah, very easy to cast, yet makes a great commotion. Um, easier to cast and less water resistance than a popper. And it's it's one of these brilliant flies because it's actually a pretty quick tie. You can yeah. crank them out at the vise, but they are very effective. So if, you, if you've never heard of a guard side gurgler, uh, look it up. They're, uh, it's a really effective fly. So you obviously fell in love with striped bass fishing. Who wouldn't fall in love with it when you're catching 50 or 60 fish in a couple of hours? That, that'd be enough for me. Yeah, but yeah. You, you mentioned that you started – on the, the Orvis nine weight and reel that you bought from Watch Hill Outfitters in Watch Hill, Rhode Island. But from there, you've kind of gone on and fished everything. You fish Loomis, you fish Sage, you fish TNT, you fish Winston, Scott, Ross, Berkheimer, the Gaddies from Italy, Gaddy, which a lot of Gaddy people haven't heard of, right? Um, Eco, Colton. Like, so you've really been deep into this and you started heavily building fly rods in 2000 right so t so after you're kind of returned to fly fishing right. so so right. tell me about getting into the fly rod building well somebody sent me and i to tell you the truth i'm embarrassed i don't even know who it was it's a long time ago he yeah. sent me a 10 weight rod a, a dan craft rod oh dan yeah craft, dan craft had two models uh, one was the, the 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 five rivers i think ft and the other one was very 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 stiff okay and I casted that for a while on my beach. I used to live on the beach. I live on the beach in Florida. And um, I got tendonitis in my, in my uh, shoulder. Yeah. So I went to more moderate rods after that. Yeah. And uh, after um, uh, the Dan Craft, I started to build on Sage. Mm -hmm. uh, they sold blanks back then. Yep. I, I remember well. I wish they'd start doing it again now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Gaddy was one of the, Gaddy in Italy was one of the best casting rods uh, around. Uh, that unfortunately they're no longer, I think, as as competitive as the as as, as Sage or, or certainly the CTS. Right. But I fished with a lot of those. I built a lot of those. I started with CTS. I think I told you when uh, Andy Deer. Yeah, absolutely. Up. He and he's been on the podcast right for a while. He was distributing those blanks, and that's that's how you found CTS initially, huh? Yeah, he called me up and said, "You got to try this blank," <clears throat> and it happened to be. Uh, see the, the the most moderate of the CTS blanks, mm -hmm. and um, it was the, the taper was very 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 slight. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a beautiful rod though. It casted nice, a little very not not very aggressive. It was a good it was a good uh, uh, rod for someone who's who's not too strong, perhaps a slight woman, perhaps a child. Mm -hmm. um, but interesting, that was made with forty four MSI graphite. Okay. So I this had, is kind of an intermediate or intermediate kind of or high end of intermediate modulus for those of you that are sort of like keeping track of it, right? Um, and of course, th this is what probably 2000, 2003, somewhere in there. It's a while ago, right? Like they've, yeah, yeah. They, they certainly they've updated materials and things since then. But um, it's certainly, yeah, you mentioned kids, you mentioned uh, maybe people of slighter stature. The I still for certain applications do like a more moderate rod, right? It's 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 it can be a more pleasurable uh fishing tool if it'll get the job done, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of the things that's interesting to me, and I know I want I guess I want to dive in a little bit if we can, Herb, because you're such an authority, and I know you're not comfortable with that characterization of yourself, but I'm gonna call you an authority, and I know you are, and you've got 
10,000 hours to use a Malcolm Gladwell term in, in this stuff. And I want to get around before we're done to some of the things you, you've learned some lessons. You, you have a very unique way of handling epoxies. You have a very unique way of how you shape your grips and some work you did with Roger at Flexcoat to figure out a safe way to do that. I think you pay a tremendous amount of detail attention to weight and the details of thread and epoxy and that kind of stuff. But let's, before we get into the building side of it, is it all right with you if we get into kind of actions, powers and tapers and those kind of things for a second? Sure. So one of the things that I learned from among other people, you is um, when we think about trout applications or salmon applications, they do make rods, sevens, seven weights, eight weights, nine weights, 10 weights for that application. But really, when we start talking about a dedicated saltwater fly rod, like one of the ones you're using for striped bass, this is kind of a different animal, right? In, in terms of the the power and the capability. And of course, there's some action and everything, you know, that goes into it. But to, to kind of start the discussion, regardless of brand, right, to fish, to we can talk specifically about targeting striped bass, because I think a lot of what's going to be true for that is true of a lot of saltwater species. But, but talk to me, you've had a long learning curve. You've used a lot of stuff that works and some stuff that doesn't. Talk to me about how you what people should know about building a dedicated saltwater fly rod, for example, like a rod for your beloved stripers that you like to chase. Yeah, without getting into the nitty gritty of how to build it. Not yet. I'll get you there. Okay. I promise. I'm not going to let you off That's the hook okay. without getting That's into okay. all of it. <laughs> um, let's talk about action. Okay. What you wanted to talk about. Sure. Um, you've got, you've got fast, you've got slow and you've got medium, which would be in the middle. Right. So I'm sure you know that you can you can uh, anchor three rods by their butts and add the same amount of weight to each one. And the fast one will lock up faster. That's why they call it fast. Right. Will lock up faster, more towards the tip. Right. The slow will, will lock up more towards the butt. And the medium, of course, would lock up in between the two. Yep. And we'll uh, we'll post a picture or a link in the description so you can see a visual depiction of what Herb's talking about. But keep going, Herb. Sorry. Hey, now, generally, because nothing is etched in stone, generally right. the faster rod will be more powerful yep. because it locks up faster. You have more blank that hasn't been flexed yet. Right. And if if you're able to flex it, you can generate better casts. Yep. You certainly you certainly have more fish fighting ability. Right. Because you have power down there that has not been accessed yet. Right. The slower rod uh, that that locks up way towards the grip you have there's no meat left yeah. for, for power to fight a fish right there's also no meat left to extend your casting range because yeah. there's nothing left right but in my opinion medium action rods can have much more power than a fast action rod because if you push a fast action rod you push it the tip is collapsing right because it's soft Right. So you're really casting, you're really casting with a seven and a half foot rod because yep. the tip is not contributing at all yeah. to the cast. Yep. Uh, you can tell when you, when, when this happens, if you're casting sinking lines, mm -hmm. which are heavy, very, and you use a, fa a fast action rod, you're not engaging the tip and you can feel it. The tip is not engaging. You're engaging well below the tip. Yep. So you're losing potential. Yep. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Okay. Now, it may be too soon to jump into my FSA, but that that it's a good example. Uh, Stephen has CTS had uh, a, a custom uh, blank 
designing program called Prime. Yeah, and I'll, I'll give some people some background here as you get into this, Herb, because I think it's a really interesting thing because you and I have worked on designing some blanks for me, some of which were fly, some of which weren't. So if you didn't know this, if you're in North America and you want to order a CTS rod blank, any rod blank out of the catalog, or if they have something very similar to what you're looking for, but you maybe want a power heavier or a power lighter, you can reach out to Herb. And he will get in touch with Stephen and Galen Pratt at CTS, and they actually have a program where they will, if you if you pay a design fee, they will actually prototype and make blanks for you and help you get an action. You can either get an action in between a couple of the ones they currently make, or you could get one lighter, one heavier. And I know we've done a bunch of work where you've helped me get slow pitch blanks, right? And, and help me right. kind of uh, get heavier and lighter for real specialized applications in real deep water for electric reels and some guys fishing incredibly heavy jigs for swordfish down deep. Like we were able to take the action we love of the CTS and beef it up and with this design fee. So it's a, it's a really unique program that you get only from a place that's almost like a custom shop, which is kind of the way I think of CTS with all the colors that you can get the blank painted and with all the various models and this ability to design. But what Herb's referring to is he has personally, Herb has done a lot of design work with CTS over the years and has a series of rods that he and Stephen Pratt at CTS designed. And that that's what you're referring to as the FSA, right, Herb? Correct. Okay, keep going. Uh, Sorry. That's okay. This started uh, back, I guess, about seven or eight years ago. I wanted to appeal more to the trout because I do a lot of saltwater stuff. Sure. And I want to appeal more to the trout, trout guys. Mm-hmm. So I had Stephen build me five blanks, two sock. One was the Affinity X, one was the Affinity MX. Mm -hmm. The other three were custom that I designed using his program. One of them was not a shroud rod. That turned out to be the FSA. Now, I didn't design the, the, it's like a a Chinese menu. One from column A, one from column B. Right. If you, FS, FS, you could choose on the left what butt action you wanted. Right. You could choose on the right what tip action you wanted. Yep. Well, FS signifies fast. Mm-hmm. A signifies neutral. Okay. Immediate. Right. So put the two together. That's an FSA blank. Yeah. And when this FSA five weight came in, I knew it was not a trap rod. So I never built it. I didn't build it for three years. <clears throat> I finally built it one day and it was more like a seven weight rod. Yeah. A mod, we're using modern lines. Right. Seven. Right. Okay. Not a Rio outbound. This is that's three lines heavy, but a normal, a normal modern six weight, seven. <laughs> yep. So I didn't fish seven weights at the time. So I gave it to my friend uh, Bruce, Bruce Campo, who uses it for uh, smallmouth bass in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Until lo and behold, he sends me a video of him and his friend Jack on the Cape at one of our favorite spots, fishing for striped bass and catching striped bass on this five weight, having a lot of. They weren't big. You know, 20 inches, 22 inches, 23 inches, but those smaller fish have attitude. Oh, yeah. Especially in some current, right? Oh, yeah. So when I saw that, I had Stephen build build me in six through nine. Yeah. Six weight through nine weights. Nine weight turned out to be my favorite rod. Yeah. That that rod is an absolute cannon. It is. Yeah. So I, I, I purchased one of these blanks from Herb and it is Canon is right. It is, but it has a lot of feel. Right. And so this is really interesting. And you, this spurred some conversation between us. And I want to, I want to draw this out and, and have you educate us a little bit, if you will. I mean, what you were trying to accomplish is on one hand, like you mentioned, if you have a very fast action, that means there's more of the rod left to, to load and, and there could potentially be more power. 
However, because you're giving up the tip because that's so fast and and doesn't doesn't it effectively shortens the lever when you're trying to generate line speed and and apply more power, you know, to try to to get that line speed and get greater distance or move a heavier sinking line or a heavier sinking line and a bulkier fly or cast into the wind like it feels like we're always doing in salt water, right? So it's kind of this this interesting a stiff rod is often a faster rod and it gives you a faster recovery rate, but it also doesn't feel as good. Right. And so something that has a little bit more moderate, like the tip on this FSA gives you more feel. Sometimes it's described as a little more sweet or it has a little more, feels a little more sensitive to what you do as a caster, but it's kind of this combination of these assets, right? If it's too fast and too stiff, it feels dead. If it's too fast, it effectively shortens the lever. If it's too soft, it doesn't have enough power to cast or worst case, not worst case, I guess it's a good case. When you hook a big fish, you got no more power left to fight the fish, right? So by mixing this fast butt with a lot of reserve power with a more moderate tip that doesn't just fold up like a fast tip, you're you're kind of milking the best of both worlds. I think that's why that rod is such a cannon to use your term. And it's a very apt term to describe it is because it's, it's multi zones kind of right. You know, you, you're using part of the rod most of the time. And then when you really have to go stand on it to cast, you use a little bit more of the butt. And then when you actually hook a fish, you've got plenty of butt left to fight it. So it's a, it's a great combination of, fish fighting. And I had no idea that those started as a five weight though. That's, that's, that's yeah. a surprise. It also, it also helps you track a straight, a straight path of the tip Yep, because it's easier because the tip doesn't collapse because when you're, when you're casting, yep. you have to, you have coordinate the flex of the rod with the straight line, straight line tip. Well, it's yep. easy with a rod that where the tip is not so soft. Interesting. Another thing too, that I think can confuse people. So Herb, when he's talking about these rods and these blanks and everything that he's been working on for these 20 plus years, it's based on that. If you go back to that simple uh, kind of image that he, he laid out for us, imagine we've got three rod blanks mounted horizontally on a rod and we, we add an ounce or two of weight to them. They're going to show you what their action is fast, moderate, slow, right? Based on how much of the rod bends or said differently, if you deflect a rod till the tip is pointing 90 degrees to the butt, perpendicular to the butt, how, how much of the blank is actually bending? And let's say uh, a third of it or less, then it's fast. Half of it or less, it's moderate. If, if three quarters or more of the blanks building, we call that bending, we call that slow. But don't confuse that with the way rod manufacturers describe rods, right? Because some people call a fast action rod a fast action rod that that maybe it's fast as a marketing term, but it doesn't actually flex that way and vice versa. So there, you just need to be careful that when you're buying, if you're buying factory rods or if you're buying blanks, the very best way is to to go somewhere you can test cast them or, or talk to somebody like Herb who has extensive experience personally with the blanks like these CTS blanks. Because it can get really cluttered, Herb, sometimes with all the marketing hype that surrounds fly equipment, right? And, and you mentioned the lines like Rio outbounds are actually three line weights heavier. You know, uh, many right. of them today are two line weights heavier. And we've kind of been playing this game with making the rods faster, more powerful, making the lines heavier. And it's like, is a five weight really a five weight anymore? So any guidance you'd give people beyond that around, you've done a really good job describing the fast, moderate, slow, anything else about, you know, kind of power and, and, and action that you'd relay to people based on your experience? Well, just to back up a minute, you're absolutely sure. correct. There's no standard fast. It's totally subjective. Yeah. Uh, I built, I built a 10 foot 
Affinity X eight mm-hmm. rate. Nice rod for yep. a friend of mine, and uh, he broke it. Oh, <laughs> we were fishing together, but he broke it in his car door. But oh we no! It. <laughs> yeah, so I, I actually I have to rewrap the tip. Anyway, he went out and he bought a, a rod from another manufacturer, factory right. rod, marked fast, and he let me cast it because we were fishing side by side. He yeah. was using the same line he used on the Affinity X, and the rod was not fast. I mean, it it it, it almost buckled down to the to the butt. So you you have to be careful. You know, you can't just everybody uses the term fast. Right. But it's totally it's totally subjective. The other thing you have to understand is that if you read all the PR material, and I'm not answering your question, but backing up for a second, if you read sure. all the PR material, no company except CTS mentions the modulus graphite that they use. Yep. Uh, CTS is 57 uh, MSI million per square inch. Yep. No one else, they just say fast, but they don't say where the fast is coming from. Now, you can have fast with 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 uh, with the slower graphite, but the wall thickness has to be has to be much thicker, and that compromises your weight. Yeah, absolutely. I was at Chico's house once. The first time I met Chico, actually, I, I, I took an advanced flight casting lesson from him, and I brought seven CTS rods with me. Yeah. And he started to cast them with me, and yeah. his eyes opened wide. You know, what is this CTS? <laughs> so... We wiggled his, his, there was a competitor's eight weight, nine yeah. foot eight weight. We wiggled that versus the Affinity X 10 weight. And the Affinity X 10 weight was lighter in the hand. Oh, yeah. Than, than one of his, one of his eight weights. And uh, he asked me for one of the rods. So it's like Babe Ruth saying, gee, I like you. I like your bat kid. <laughs> so I gave him a nine weight right on the spot. Yeah. Um, oh, you're a better man than me. I probably would have gotten so overwhelmed. I'd give him all of them. <laughs> <laughs> he's kind of a big deal, right? He's he's kind of a hero. He yeah. is. He is. Yeah. Well, yeah, and the CTS blanks are spectacular. I mean, I, I if you've never tried them, and again, preference is subjective and everything else, but they really are a different, a different breed of cat in my eyes. Um, so talk to me a little bit, Herb, about have you come to develop an opinion about length or how do you view the trade-off in length, right? Well, I've, I've built a lot of rods personally between eight and a half and 10 and a half feet. Okay. As single-handed and rods. Single-handed rods. Okay. And the eight and a half foot is a, is a pleasure to cast. It's light in the hand. Yeah. Uh, I actually used one with a guide on, on, uh, on, on K on, uh, in Rhode Island. We were fishing for uh, striped bass during the worm hatch. Oh yeah. Yeah. And he asked me to cast it and he cast, he loved it. And I'm going to give it to him when I get back there. But the eight and a half footer, you're, you're compromising, you talk about a lever, you're compromising length. Yep. So it's great for boat fishing where you don't have to make 90 foot casts. Right. And the 10 and a half foot rods that I've casted, first of all, unless you're a gorilla, you can't develop line speed with a right. single hand 10 and a half foot rod. I built one for one guy. And I tested it out before I built it. I just taped guides onto it and I tested it out. Sure. And it went past, Stephen told me, you went past the optimal length for a, for a, for a Infinity X rod because the tip was just too soft. He might have yeah. just, he might have been fishing with a nine foot rod because he was losing a foot and a half of it just yeah. in flex. Right. He likes the rod, but it, it, it was, did not make sense. So yeah. through experience, a nine foot rod gives you the maximum leather and enables you to generate 
high line speeds because you can move it real fast. Yeah. So, and then as it relates to striper fishing, and 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 I think this is kind of true of a lot of saltwater fish, but we'll we'll keep it limited to stripers for now. Um, again, in a perfect world, and we're rod builders, so we like to make lots of rods, right, <laughs> in different lengths and different powers and everything. But so, if you had to pick one, you sounds like if you had to pick one length for for most people, nine foot is going to be it unless you're in a boat and you can get away with that eight and a half or eight, eight or whatever. Um, what about line? If you had to pick one line weight that you said, Hey, versatile, best all around. If you're, if you have to go with just one or if you're starting and you're starting to build a collection and you need to start with a cornerstone rod first, what, what line weight would you recommend? Well, the, the rod that I would recommend would be a 10 weight. Okay. First of all, yep. that would be the rod. So you okay. don't want a 10 weight. So you don't want a 10 weight line. Yep. But, it's important to pick a moderate <laughs> weight, like okay. the like the Affinity MX. Yep. Um, Mike Oliver, who's a, who's a, from the UK, yep. Brit, and I used to fish with him a lot on the Cape. He had, uh, and I can use the name because it, it was a long time ago. He had a Sage XI2. Okay. He I remember. Him. I yep. owned one yep. too. I owned it for a week. He owned <laughs> one, and he couldn't. He just couldn't load the rod, and he's a good caster. Yeah. Right. So as a gift, I made him a CTS Affinity MX. Okay. And he uses that till today. Oh wow! It's a very pleasing rod to to, yep. to use. It's a moderate action. It's, it's moderate fast to fast. Okay. But it's very very nice to use. Yeah. Uh, and what line that? I think I think a, a Rio Outbound Nine would be good for that ten weight. Yep. Or or a, a, a modern regular modern uh, nine weight it's i'm sorry 10 weight uh a fly line yeah like uh an sa uh amplitude smooth mm -hmm. uh, or um uh, an airflow cold water so mm -hmm. cold water which is a 40 foot head yep i fish steep beaches a lot mm -hmm. so i need a short head because i don't want to get stuck on the seaweed behind me or the rocks behind me right so I like a short head, which I, I like the Rio, especially for the uh, for the FSAs. I like a Rio outbound, which is a thirty foot head, very powerful line. Yeah, and it's my FSAs exactly to line weight. So a seven would be a seven weight Rio outbound. The nine weight would be a nine weight Rio outbound. Okay. And the eight, and I had my eight weight here that I fished the surf. That I just, I'm, I've been out in the morning. My eight weight with an eight weight Rio outbound. It's perfect. I'm talking in ninety feet. Tight loops. My friend Bruce, who I fish with on Cape Cod, Bruce Campo, he gets hives when he thinks about thirty foot heads. <laughs> he likes he likes forty foot heads. He likes yeah. fifty foot heads. Hey, but he's, he's that's why they make foot. chocolate and vanilla. He can, he can fish whatever he wants. God bless America. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm barely five eight. I think I'm I think I'm shorter now. He 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 weighs two hundred pounds. He's over six feet. He's yeah. a long reach. Right, and he can extend his arm. He can his, his stroke is longer than mine. I can my 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 stroke is a short. I've strong upper body, so my my yep. stroke is short, a short, sharp, strong stroke. So right. that's where the, the 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 short heads come in handy. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and and Herb is an excellent caster. He won't tell you that either, but you you can probably 
to get the picture from some of the company he's keeping and how long he's been at this. But yeah, so that's, you know, I think sometimes there's a little macho factor, Herb, and people say, oh, if you fish a short head, it means you're not a good caster or you're not, you know, no, 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 no. It's uh, horses for courses. And if you know what you're doing, you can make that work. A lot, a lot of people, when they fish with short heads, think they don't. And they do, unless you do it right. Yeah. <clears throat> if you get the stroke right, uh, I mean, I, I'm on the beach fishing 80, 90 feet uh, with these short heads. They don't dump if you do it right. Uh, the only issue with them is that they splash when they splash down. Yeah. So I may not want to use it for, for sight fishing. Right. So, and certainly not for trout. Right. But, uh, but stripers don't seem to mind splash down. Yeah. So talked a little bit about the line and the heads and, and what you like. And again, if you listen closely, what Herb's saying is it's partially what works well for him based on his experience. And it's partially the the conditions that he's fishing, right? So if he's got, like he's saying, a steep uh, beach behind him or rocks or whatever it is, you have to take that into account. You're not going to be able to aerialize these long back casts, right, uh, to bring it forward. So uh, it's a very interesting so there's a lot of good advice baked into what you're talking about, Herb. Um, any any other advice you'd give in terms of knots or rigging or, or backing or reels or anything that you've learned? Uh, I've owned, I think I've owned every reel under the sun, <clears throat> except the Mako, because I don't want to spend $1,000 <laughs> for a reel. But uh, I'm currently down to the old Bauer MX-5s. Mm -hmm. I think I have about five of those. Uh -huh. um, I like uh, Nautilus. I have a lot of Nautilus reels. Yeah. Um, and uh, Danielsons. I don't know if you know the Danielson. Reel. I don't know Danielson. They're they're out of Sweden. Uh, they sell direct, so the prices are prices are unbelievable because of the currency dis difference. Ah, uh, okay. And, uh, for for two hundred dollars, you get an unbelievable reel. That's that's not subpar in, in any manner. That's interesting. Yeah, I I thought I knew all the brands. I don't know that one. You know, I have been. I guess someone put me onto the, I had been fishing Nautilus reels and somebody put me onto the hatch reels and I've had really good luck with the hatch reels recently too. Um, it's a, they're very similar to the Nautilus, but uh, just a, a bulletproof, not cheap, but no. uh, made in America, very well made. It's a good brand. Yeah, it is. <laughs> but you know, I, I'm, I'm 85 years old now and I don't buy green bananas anymore. <laughs> so so to invest five hundred dollars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear you. I hear you. Because I think I have. I, I don't. I must have fifteen reels. So you know, how much can you own? Yeah. Well, hey, uh, we're going to try to find out. I guess. <laughs> don't tell my wife, right? Don't tell my wife. Uh, well, that's um. So that's super helpful. Um, I, I want to get into some of the things because Herb, you. You've mentored and taught a lot of people to build rods. You've taught me a lot of tips and tricks over the years. And there's there's several things you do that I think are kind of unique or just really reflect a refined amount of focus and technique. Um, and so in no particular order, I'd love to walk you through some of these things. One of the things that was most intriguing to me and that I'm, I'm kind of hoping we reveal to the world a little bit here, and I've never seen or heard anybody do it or talk about it till you, is you have a really different method of how you do static deflection when you're setting these rods up and determining the number and the spacing of guides. Is that something you'll talk? Are you comfortable revealing that to the world? Is that something you share? Yeah, I don't have a problem with that. Okay, First of all, well, walk us I, through I, that because this is very, very unique. And and if you're like me, you're going to be like, wait a minute, why? What's he? And then you hear more and you try it and you're like, wow, this really works. So talk us through your static deflection. Well, first of all, I, I, I spine every rod that I build. Mm -hmm. 
contrary to popular, so some popular opinion. Yeah. I spine everything. Yep. Um, I think you get a, a better, a flatter track of the of, of the tip when you do that. Okay. Anyway. Well, I, well I, talk talk to me now. Be a little more specific. So you're when you're finding, let's say when you're spining the rod, you're finding a place the rod wants to come to rest, and there's an inside of the curve and an outside of the curve, right? Or a hard right. side and a soft side. Correct. Beyond the fact that you're spining it, talk to me a little bit about how you're setting up these rods in terms of where you're aligning the guides in the real seat relative to that soft side and the inside of the curve and the outside of the curve. Bill, I've done both. Yep. I can't say lately I've been I've been I've been doing it on the outside of the curve, on, on the hard side. Okay. Okay. Why I don't see any difference, but it's just easy because I can see the spine mark and I'm not wrapping on top of the spine. Spine mark, right? So right. I do that. Okay. And but the way I, I spine a four piece rod is I spine the the tip first and I mark it, and then I, that's S four. Okay. And then I spine the 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 next one down. That's S three. I can mark that. Now S two and S one, the butt and and the next up is much too difficult to spine individually because these are salt water rods. You can't bend. Right. So I I, I assemble it. The S S one and S two. I assemble it and I spine that. And I look for the logo. CTS spines the butt. Right. They put the logo. So I see where the logo is. If it's not off directly to the right-hand side, I twist the, the joint a little bit. I twist it until when I spine it, the logo is exactly where it is. Yep. Where it's supposed to be. Then I put the whole thing together. And I spine it again, butt on the ground, tip in my hand. I spine it again. And sometimes the spine will be a little off. Because the, the lower sections will affect the spine of the upper sections. Yep. So Herb just shared a bunch of information. I want to unpack a little bit of it for some of you that may be more novice. A little bit of what's built into what he's describing is a four-piece fly rod. And so when he says S1, he means section one, the tipmost section. Then the second section down from the tip is S2, then S3 and S4. The other way so, around. The other oh, way around. sorry, other way around. Okay. Yeah. So S1 being the buttmost section, S2 Correct. being the next section, S3 being towards the tip, and S4 being the tipmost section. So when you listen to what he just said, if you go back and listen to it, keep that in mind. So keep going. Sorry, Herb. Okay. So anyway, so now I flex it with butt on the ground, tip in the hand. My spine marks are off. I just remark it. It'll be off a little bit. So, so the rod will, will, will flex the way it wants to flex. Right, and I, I I've done both guys on the soft side, guys on the hard side. Lately, I've been doing it on the hard side. Okay, interesting. So there you go. I mean, it's funny you you cringed a little bit saying, "Hey, I spine all my blanks," because because there's been so much debate over the years, and this has been a hotly contested topic. But I think one of the really important things that I just heard Herb say is he didn't read it on a chat room, he didn't take advice from somebody else. He's done it both ways, right? And he's learned that. Uh, I also want to highlight this point: you you can't. There's you can spine individual sections, but at the end of the day, you're never going to fish the rod as individual sections. You're going to fish it assembled, so you can put them together. And sometimes it will move the spine relative to the the two sections together will act different as an assembly than the individual component parts act. So you just want to double check that. It's right. very very good advice. And no, he has come he has come to put the guides in the real seat so they're oriented on the outside of the spine after having tried it both ways. So you can argue one way or the other, but at least he did the research and did the work himself to develop his opinion, which I think is always a really good habit for rod builders. It's so, the good news is there's so much information available today 
on the internet, the bad news is there's more garbage than ever <laughs> clogging the airwaves, yeah. right? So uh, trust someone who is the best way is to get your own experience by trying it yourself. And if not, make sure you, you're following someone who's actually done what they're talking about because it makes a difference. Now, there's another dimension to this. All right, keep going. And they'll tell you the experts, the experts on the on the sites, they'll tell mm. you to build it to the straightest access. I right. understand. It. So you twist the, the sections until you get a straight line. The, the issue is CTS doesn't make crooked blanks. Right. So there is no straightest, the straightest axis, no matter how you assemble the rod, that's going to be straight. So yeah. you want to spline every CTS blank. I spoke to Jerry Seam before he retired from Sage. Oh, yeah. Maybe, maybe. And, and Jerry know, Seam right. was, a, a, was a, a fly rod designer, a major developer of carbon fiber fly rods, and a, a significant force at Sage for a long time. Just for those of you who don't know, you can look him up. But he's he's a he's a legend in the industry and a very accomplished fly blank designer. Go ahead, Herb. I'm sorry. Absolutely. So I, I asked him, spine or not spine? He says, absolutely. If you can spine it, spine it. But the most important thing is to spine the tip. Yeah. You may not be able to spine everything else, but spine the tip. So that that's that's that was that was his advice. It's good advice. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so keep going. Let's talk about the static deflection. Sorry, we, okay. you're so okay. full of information. So, I wanted so, to unpack so now, that so a little now, bit. So Sorry, now that, go ahead. Now, now it's spine. I attach the tip top and um, I anchor the rod, the butt. Either, either I have a, a, a grip on or I don't have a grip on. It's not important. I anchor the butt on a high piece of furniture because I don't have a workshop. I live in a condo. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I attach, I, I'll ultimately attach a weight to it. Before I do that, I thread uh, neoprene O-rings. This is what you're talking about? Is this what is what I'm talking to? about. I'm talking about the I, neoprene O-rings. So talk, okay. so I, yeah, I, I, keep I, going. I, I, I buy a, a set of, oh, I have a lot of O-rings and different sizes, ranging from the size of a, of a, of a stripping guide to the size of uh, the last guide on the on the fly rod near the tip. And I thread them on, I'll, if I want 10 guides, if I think I want 10 guides, I'll thread 12 of these O-rings on because you never know, you may need 11, you might need 12. Right. So I thread that on and then run a, a line through the whole thing. I don't believe in the two line system of a, a static flex test. I yeah, I don't in, either, I don't either. So. I'll, I'll thread it all through my O-rings, through the tip top, and down to a heavy weight. And the rod is pointed, the tip is bent. pointed down. Statically bent, yep. Absolutely. Then I'll slide the O-rings uh, around to get the type of curve that I uh, that I want. And it's important to do this because nothing is pat. Uh, CTS has, has affinity guide placements, but the affinity X is much different than the affinity MX. Right. So you have to move these guides around, these O-rings around to get the the, uh, the shape that you want. If you only need 10, then you sister two O-rings together. So you, you, you put them close together so you're not influencing the blank spend. Right. And the reason, uh, Herb, you developed this is if anyone's ever done enough. So first of all, I think a lot of us are probably guilty. I've seen a lot of builders. A lot of builders are guilty of being a little bit lazy and just using a guide spacing chart or taking it off a factory rod. So not optimally placing the guides in the best spot for that rod and that setup. So, but if you're doing that, which you should be doing, but a lot of times what you're doing is you're taping guides on and you're bending them, you're taping guides on your bend them, or you're using surgical tubing, or you're using, you know, any other number of means of, of, of temporarily affixing the actual guides to the blank and trying to do your static deflection 
The problem with that is it is very, very easy to scratch up your blank and and leave marks and in sort of artifacts from that process, right? And in and, and the temptation right. to unless you relax the flex on the rod every single time, tweak things around a little bit. And it's it's not as easy to do that as it is to be able to move things around. So by right. using these neoprene O-rings, leaving the rod bent the whole time through the tip top as it would be with guides on there. And then using these neoprene rings that approximate the size of the guides, kind of the height off the rod blank, the size of the guides, you're able to get perfect spacing of where the ring should be. And then you can mark that and you've got no damage, no scratches, no marks, no anything else to your rod. Right. It's actually really brilliant. Um, where do you get the O-rings? Like, what are these sold for? Are you cutting your you own? Can buy, or like you can buy them online or any good hardware store. They're, they're seals. An O-ring is a seal. The seal a, too, but I, you... I guess I didn't know neoprene. I, I guess I haven't seen them in neoprene. I've seen all kinds in rubber and silicone and gaskets and all this stuff, but neoprene, that was a new one on me. It's a brilliant idea. Yeah, yeah. And I, I would think it would be maddening to untape and retape, scratching or not. It would be maddening. And you can't make nano corrections. With the O-rings, you can make nano corrections. That's the key. I and and once you move one, it changes where the others need to be and everything else. Yeah, no, yeah. it's a, it's a brilliant idea. I'm I I was really struck when you when you shared it with me, and I don't know why more people haven't thought of it, but it's a, it's a brilliant idea. You you also go about uh, sort of shaping your grips a little differently than most of us. Uh, is is that something you talk about too? Well, we can talk about that. That's my pet peeve. Okay, well, I didn't know if it was a, uh, I didn't know if it was a secret how how no. you do what you do. Okay, well, tell us, talk about how you shape your grips. Well, let's talk about why I shape my grips. Okay, perfect. Okay, first of all, I ab I abhor pre-made grips. Right. I don't like filler in the pits. Right. That'll that'll fall out over time. Yep. So what I do is, and I don't use a mandrel, as you know. If you use yep. a mandrel, you can make your own grip. You use a mandrel. Now you have to ream. Take it off the mandrel, now you have to ream the grip. And unless you have a reamer that, that is exactly the same taper as the rod blank, you're going to have spaces underneath, yep. which is going to be weakened. Now, when you when you when people say, well, but I'm filling it up with epoxy, but you're not filling it up with epoxy. Because when you apply epoxy to the blank, then you're sliding the grip on, you're squeegeeing that epoxy off the grip, off the off the, off the off blank. The right, yep. Okay. Uh, so you're going to have parts of the, of the grip that are not adhered, you're going to have parts of the blank with voids underneath. Yep. Um, I had such a, a grip with, I, I, I bought, I had, I owned a, an eight weight Winston fly rod mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the grip was spongy, ultimately disintegrated because they were using pre-made grips, sliding yep. it onto the side, onto the blank. I don't yep. know what they do now, but they did then. Yeah. So I developed this system where I, I build my, my grips right on the fly blank itself. Yep. We really should start from from scratch because one goes to the other. I use I use REC uh, uh, RSLL uh, uh, reel seats mm -hmm. exclusively. I just yep. like that. Like they, they hold they hold the rod the the, the, the reel seat uh, the reel foot the best. And first first I, I in order I have a, a bushing a foam bushing or a foam arbor that the reel seat sits on. Do you want to get this involved now? Would you? Oh yeah, it? let's go ahead if you don't mind. Yeah, okay. I was gonna, I was okay. gonna go to the arbors next. We can start. The, yeah, we can go from butt okay. to tip and do so everything. So go ahead. Go yeah, this is perfect. Of what happens here? So I took calculus in 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 college. Yep. And if you take integral calculus, you'll know that you can define the the the, the circumference of a circle by a lot of little 
infinitesimal amount of, of straight lines. Right. Well, I cut my arbor into four pieces. Yep. That's the optimal number. Cut yep. them into four pieces. I ream each one exactly concentric and I slide it onto the blank. I dry fit it every time. I fly it, slide it onto the blank until it sits where I want it to sit. Where I want it to sit is is a function of how big my my fighting butt is going to be. Mm-hmm. If my fighting butt is going to be one and a half inches, I want that orbit to sit at one and three eighths. Right. Because I need a half an inch, a quarter of an inch overlap on the on the on the cap of the of the of the fighting butt. Yep. So the first arbor sits there. Then I ream the second arbor, the third arbor, and the fourth arbor, or piece of the arbor. Mm-hmm. They either fit depending on on the, some arbors are longer than others. Sometimes right. I have to have space between them, right. but they should they should fill up the the real seat. So if you, just to be clear, because I've seen a photo of what Herb's talking about, if you imagine say a real seat arbor that's like uh, I think a RSL is about three and three quarter inches long, something like that, right? So imagine you have a, a arbor that's just under four inches long. He's cutting it into four one inch. Or in this case, it'd be a little less, but let's say a real seat's four inches long. Yeah. He's taking a four-inch arbor and cutting it into four one-inch sections and reaming each individually and making sure it gets in the exact right spot and it's completely concentric to the blank before he mounts the real seat. And so it's all these little things. If you ever take one of your rods and, and your fit and finish may be good and you think you're doing pretty clean work, but take the butt section of your fly rod and point it away from yourself and turn it spin it, rotate it. And if you're, if you're fighting butt wobbles, your real seat wobbles, anything wobbles, you're out of round. You're not completely concentric. And what's interesting about Herb's rods is they are absolutely completely concentric all the way through. Is this overkill? Is it more than you need to do? I think it's just custom, right? And I think you can't, you can't take too much pride in, in, in workmanship or, or put too much attention into the a tool that's going to help you enjoy your time on the water personally. But um, so keep going, Herb. I, I, it's fascinating. Well, normally a builder will epoxy the arbor into the real seat first. Right. That's a no-no in my opinion. Yep. And then what they'll do is it's in there now. Now they have to ream it. And it's not going to be, it's not going to mimic the taper of the rod of the blank. And if they're off kilter and they put it on the rod blank, when they install their pre-made grip, the the porting is not going to match up with the with the hood of the of the of the real seat. Right. And in order to correct that, they're going to have to ream out an oval in the real in the, in the grip so that it will match up with the with the real seat. Right. Uh, it's so much easier to do it right the first time. It is. And, and again, it does require a little bit of specialized equipment and a little care to turn the handle, the grip on the rod blank, but that is the strongest way, right? You're, you're gluing the rings to each other and you're gluing the rings directly to the blank. Every single one of them, it's the strongest possible way to build a grip. You'll never have a grip fail. You'll never have a fighting grip fail. Yeah. So what I do is I, now I have my real seat now you have to bush wrap thread or 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 fly line backing around the arbor because that's not going to be snug to the real seat they never are so you'll have to bush that by wrapping spiral around the uh, the arbor once the arbor is epoxy is cured you'll wrap it with uh, uh, generally two ways and then the real seat will fit on very snugly so then you put epoxy on the real seat put that on the arbor and then you're ready to go. Now you now you now you've had have the blank, the the uh, 
the arbor, the real seat. Now you're going to start building the rod, the grip. So what you do is you you put your 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 first cork that goes over the hood, and I developed a, a system for that. I bought a five sixteenths, fifteen sixteenths hole saw, okay, and knocked off some of the. It, it, this is a cross cut saw, so I knocked off some of the outer teeth to form a 0.933 port for my cork. Okay. You following me? Yep. So, okay. So, so the, the hood for the RSLL real seat is right. exactly nine 0.933. Yep. So my, my cork fits exactly on there. Right. And what he's talking about is the recess. This is an uplocking real seat. And so you have to inlet it for the hood, right? And so he's inletting a cork ring to fit over that that uh, recessed hood on the uplocking RSL right. real seat. Yep. So then I install my second cork ring. Yep. So now you have the recessed cork ring that's over the hood and another cork ring. <clears throat> then I assemble my fighting butt. Before I sell my assemble my fighting butt, whether it's a, a rubberized cork cap or uh, an EVA cork cap, I use um, a brass, a sharpened brass tube. Mm-hmm. to cut a hole right in the center of that cap. Yep. The diameter of that tube depends on the diameter of the of the butt of the blank. You want the butt, the diameter of the tube to be a little bit greater than the diameter of the butt of the blank. Right. And you'll take your, your rubberized cork butt cap that has no hole in it, and right in the center, you're going to sharp, with a sharpened, that sharpened brass tube, you're going to cut a hole in the center of that. And you assemble that whole thing for the fighting butt. Okay. Uh, now you clamp it lightly. If you assemble the whole grip and clamp it to squeeze everything together, you're going to squeeze that cork ring over the hump of the of the fly of the fly reel seat. Okay. okay. There's a little there's a little ridge there. Right. That that your your cork ring that your ported cork ring snuggles up to. Right. If you clamp that down too much, you're going to run it right over that little that little molding okay after that's cured then you put on your other cork rings now cork the cork rings you buy and i buy very expensive cork rings they're over three dollars a piece no we're we're all buying expensive cork rings just some of them are better than others (laughs) you buy good expensive cork rings (laughs) so so now the the face of these cork rings are never parallel so first of all i i I take I, i i i scrub them with a with 60 60 grit paper just mm-hmm. to get them smooth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I start to build it. If the if the front cork ring, the last cork ring you put on, if that's absolutely f- perpendicular to the rod blank, that's great. Nine times out of 10 is not. Right. So you rotate your rings. They're dry fitted now. Right. You rotate the rings until that front ring is absolutely perpendicular. And then you draw a line using a Sharpie down the whole length of that grip. Like a witness mark, so you can line them back up again once yeah, you add the glue. Exactly. Yep. Because when, okay. when you're using epoxy, you don't want to start messing around. Missing no. the corks around. Right. So I, I, I do that. Now, my favorite epoxy is not a paste. My fa- I've been using this epoxy, West System. West oh, System yeah. epoxy. I've been using them for 50 years for various things. Uh, the West System G-Flex 650 is, in my opinion, the best to use. It's not too runny. It's not too pasty. Hmm. Uh, it's and it's flexible. Yep. So uh, I use that, and then I put my clamp on, and uh, wipe off the excess stuff, and then mm-hmm. I let it set up, <clears throat> and then I take it out of the out of the uh, the clamp. 
And I have, I think, you know, I have a Flexcoat cork lathe. Well, yeah, let's talk about that a little bit because you you kind of have a, I think why some people cringe when they talk about forming the cork grip actually on the rod blank. For one thing, these are usually four-piece fly blanks. So it's a short section of rod relative to a trying to form it on a seven or eight foot rod, right? Right. But some people say, oh, how are you going to turn it? You're, how do you chuck it in the lathe? And, and we've all heard horror stories about people crushing their blank or, you know, otherwise doing damage to the rod. It can seem Absolutely. like crazy and reckless, but you've literally built thousands of these things and without issue because you had you and roger kind of came up with a a a clever way to attach the rod to the to the drill or the lathe right right you want to talk about that can we yeah absolutely okay um but years ago i didn't cut a hole in in the in the butt cap of the foot so i didn't use a shaft in there okay now now i put i I put it i have a one foot long stainless shaft that I bush into the butt section of the rod. Be very careful that you don't go past the grip. Yep. And be very careful that you put tape to the bushing cape on the very end of that of that steel rod. You don't want to touch the inside of the blank with a steel rod. Right. So that's one way of doing it. And I, I put the steel rod in my, in the chuck of the of the drill. My steady. My I have the uh, the steadies of the of the of the flex coach cause you know, lathe. Mm-hmm. One on the one on the uh, the real seat, one on the blank. The blank is taped. The real seat is taped, and then I turn the reel. I just blip the reel. I, I blip the 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 the, uh, the drill, and I force the uh, <clears throat> the grip further onto the onto this uh, this rod, the steel rod. <clears throat> so now I know it's going to turn. You don't want the you don't want the the the, the, the rod to slip on that on that uh, steel rod that's in the that's in the butt. Otherwise, right. you'll get an oval. You'll get an oval grip. Right. So that's the way I build them now. However, if someone wants to, like I build a rod for a guy. It was a ten foot two piece. Mm-hmm. I built it for him, and he felt the handle was a little. It was a, it was a, a full wells grip. He felt the, the grip was a little too heavy in mm-hmm. the in the Too much of a full wells. So we brought it to a rod guy, and he says, "No, no, you can't. Once this rod is built, you can't do it." Well, that's nonsense. <clears throat> so he mailed it to me. And I use Roger's technique. Yep. And what that is, you put a three-eighths inch or a quarter inch bolt with the head cut off into the chuck of your drill. Yep. Then you take you set up your, your cork lathe, the flexible cork lathe, such that the rod butt meets exactly that steel rod, that the steel uh, that cut off steel uh, uh, bolt that's bolt, in the uh, right. in the in the drill. They have to be the exact diameter. So you're either going to with tape around the blank to make it the same diameter as the bolt, or you could put tape around the bolt to make it the same diameter as the blank. Right. Then you're going to go to Home Depot and you're going to go get some residue-free duct tape. And you're going to wrap the interface three or four times. And then you're going to go, you're going to go spiral up towards on the blank like two, three, four wraps. And then you're going to spiral back three, four wraps onto the bolt so now you have an egg-shaped shape and you're going to take your hand and squeeze that egg-shaped thing down so it's tight now you, you're free to turn you have to make sure that it's perfectly straight you have to align it vertically and horizontally you don't want the rod cocked off to one side and the bolt is this way and you have the rod cocked off that way or up or down you want it exactly flush and square <clears throat> then you can run it at 24 2500 rpm 
no no risk of damaging anything. Where can you find residue free duct tape? I think I've Home mostly Depot. been using Home the has it. Home, Depot. Home Depot. Okay, all right, yeah, I've been using the heavy residue, never get it all off duct tape. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't want to stress the blank too much. No, no. Um, I was also speaking about my favorite fly fishing guide in Cape Cod. Yes, sir. Tony Bisky. Uh-huh. And uh, I couldn't think of where, where he ran his boat out of, but he, his boat out of Harwich Port, Cape Cod. It's Jones Brothers 23. So I fished with Tony for 20 years. I just wanted to make that clear. Yeah, you know, I, I Googled him when you first mentioned his name, and I found him very easily and recognized his photos. I've seen him in magazines before, for sure. Yeah. I'd like to elaborate a little bit more about building a grip. Sure. Okay. Uh, once the grip is mounted on the on the lathe, be it a cork lathe or, 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 or uh, call it a professional lathe, mm-hmm. you have to make the cork round. You have to make the grip round. Right. It will not be round when you first start out. And to make the grip round, you're going to need a Stanley sure form file. Okay. And I only use the 10 inch model and it's half, it's a half round. It makes it much easier to take off the high spots. Okay. And that model number is 21-299. Okay. And you're going to lightly touch the spinning uh, uh, grip. It's going to be spinning, if you use a drill, it's going to be spinning at about 25, 2700 RPM. Okay. And you're going to see the high spots because the high spots will look veiled. And you're going to take the sure form, sure form file and just tick off the high spots very, very gently. Move along the, uh, the the grip. You don't want to add pressure. You just want to tick off the high spots. And once the high spots are gone, you'll see it because there'll be no no more veiled high spots. Number one and number two, you're not going to hear the tick 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 of the high spots as it hits the file. And and just the the file, you'll see this if you go look up the model number, but the file that Herb's talking about is actually a very coarse rasp. So you don't need, like he's saying, you don't need to apply a lot of pressure. The speed does the work and you actually just lightly apply it and it's going to take off the high spots and leave you with a concentric to the bore round grip that you can begin to shape. And I'm I'm glad you brought that up because if you do try to shape the grip with the shore form or use heavy pressure, you're going to end up with a bunch of pockmarks in the grip yep. so you do not want to shape it just round it yep and then you're going to use to shape it you're going to use a, a 60 grit uh 180 220 and finish it with 320 okay i'm only making ritz grips now i don't know if you want to get into ritz grips but... yeah let's talk about that shape because uh, it's a shape i'm familiar with it's a shape that's been around for a while but it's it's not one that you see commonly on say factory rods so talk to me about how you arrived at that shape and do you like that for all rods, <clears throat> including trout rods, or is that just for your saltwater rods? Or tell me more well, about just, that. I don't build trout rods, so I, I, I don't I don't have an opinion on that, so I can't opine okay. on that. But I do what well, I, I I build rods again for Chico. I built him a, a six weight rod mm-hmm. and a prototype six weight, and uh, I built it with, with the wrist grip. And he even commented on it; it was the most comfortable grip that he that he used. Yep. The the wrist grip is an ugly grip. Uh, the, the classic is an, actually uh, Gaddy from uh, from uh, Italy. From Italy. Yeah. He, his his factory rods have Ritz grips, mm-hmm. but they're rather ugly. They're just a, it's a, it's a cylinder with a little wider at the top and narrower at the bottom. Yeah. But I modify mine to have a, a, an extreme flare at the top, an extreme flare at the bottom. Okay. Uh, it, it looks it looks something like this if you can see it. 
So it has a flare at the top and a flare at the bottom. So basically the wrist grip that I make is, is, a, is a, a, a wrist grip with a flare at the top, a flare at the bottom, just like the, uh, uh, the Phil Fullwells, only mm-hmm. without the hump. And the one thing that I've seen some debate on, uh, it, it's when you do a Ritz grip properly, it is it is thicker towards the tip of the rod and skinnier towards the butt. Is that correct? Correct. Yep. That, that's the ergonomically correct way to build a grip. Right. Because of the ham of your hand is down at the, at the narrow, narrow yep. part. Absolutely. I'm just going to give a couple of tips for rod builders, if you don't mind. Please, yeah. To consistently get nice curves, like in a full wells or in my modified Ritz grips, because mm-hmm. straight lines are ugly. To me, they're ugly yep. on a fly rod, right. be it the fighting butt or the grip. So I have uh, some tips on how to get these nice, pleasing curves consistently. Go to a good plumbing supply store mm-hmm. and buy very, very large end fittings. End fittings because... They're, bit, they're larger than the pipe itself, and sure, you don't want to sure. buy a whole pipe, though they're cheaper. Right. And you're going to cut about a three-inch section from that from that fitting. Now, these are big fittings. I'm talking about 8, 9, 10, 12 inches in diameter. Okay. You're going to have to go to a big supply, big plumbing supply store. Right. Cut that, cut a slice off, so you, and you end up with a circle. And now you're going to cut that circle into a crescent moon. Say so cut it in half or cut it in thirds. Okay. So you're ending up with, and I'll take a picture of it and send it to you. Please you're do, yeah. With, 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 with a crescent moon, you're going to use that as a backing plate for your sandpaper. Okay. And, and it helps you get those gradual, consistently get gradual curves. Absolutely. Okay, that's a good idea. I'm not going to take a picture of my thumb, but I don't know if you can see it. My right thumb, my right thumb is much heavier than my left thumb and my right index finger is much heavier than my left index finger. Okay. That's because of all the casting I've done in the 20 or 25 years. <laughs> I use a lot of thumb pressure. Okay. Which you have to in saltwater fly fishing. Yep. In freshwater, you'll use your index finger to delicately lay a fly down, but in saltwater, you're going to use your thumb a lot. And when you do that, you're going to shred, you may shred the cork where your thumb comes in contact with the grip. Mm-hmm. So I have a, a method of excising that one or two rings from the cor- middle of the cork grip and installing new cork. Okay. Uh, and what you're going to need is uh, a, a fine cut wood file. Uh, wood file uh-huh. from uh, it used to be called uh, Japan Craft or Japan Woodworking. Now it's called Woodcraft. And it's a, a, a red-colored handled file. The item, item number is 150566. And with that, you can precisely cut one ring out of the grip, or two rings if you have to. And very carefully, you have to cut along the epoxy line, the, the glue line, because you want to replace it with one single cork ring. Okay. Again, if, if, if you if you messed up two cork rings you want to replace two cork rings you'll never replace more than two right but assuming it's one cork ring you'll 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 excise that cork from glue line to glue line okay now you're going to take it the cork that you want to place it with and you're going to cut it in half you're going to cut it in half this way okay you don't want to use a you don't want to use a saw even if it's a fine cut saw you want to use a very very sharp knife because you don't want a saw curve you don't want to curve. You don't want to remove any material. Yep. Exactly. 
So now you, b- before you've cut that, that ring in half, you've reamed it to approximately the same size as, as the graphite under the grip. Okay. By the way, when you, when you use that, that file, you, you want to, you'll, as you ask on the lathe, you'll see a, a hint of gray coming up. You can stop there. You don't want to go into the graphite, obviously. Right. So right. stop your grinding when you can see a, 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 a little bit of faint gray. Sure. You're going to take that, that cork grip, that cork ring that you cut in half, and you're going to slather it with epoxy, put epoxy on the inside where you cut out the old grip, the old cork, and force that in. It should be snug. Force it in real tight. Now you're going to wrap it with saran wrap. Ah, okay. And you're going to put a hose clamp on it. Yep. And after two, three hours, however long it takes for the epoxy to set, take the hose clamp off, take the saran wrap off, mount it onto your lathe, and blend it into your cork grip. Yep. Yes, there'll be a seam on both sides, but unless you're looking very, very, very closely, you're never going to see it. And Herb, do you use the same epoxy that you use for making, building the grip initially for the repair? Yes, for for my structural epoxy, I think I mentioned I only use West System G-Flex, number number 650. G-Flex, number 650. Okay. That's why it's not too runny and it's not too thick. Yep. Uh, To eliminate that problem of shredding your cork, uh, there are two things that you can do. On this grip, I interspace some rubberized cork Mm -hmm. into the grip. Yep. Uh, But to make it visually uh, uh, totally blind to you, I bought um, a cork jig that you can cut very thin slices of cork. Yep. From, from mud hole has it. Yeah. Yep. And I cut I cut uh, two rings into six one sixteenth inch slices. Right. And I epoxy that at the front of the grip. The epoxy, even though there's a, you're squeezing a lot of it out, the epoxy will act as a buffer against your thumb, so you're not going to shred that cork. Right. Yeah, and that's very durable. Yeah. I'm sitting here thinking about how I've never worn out a grip and you've worn out enough of them casting that you've mastered a technique of replacing a couple of cork rings. I, I need to get out and cast more. No wonder you cast so beautifully. You've, you've got 10,000 hours. Let's talk a little bit about how you fill uh, holes, epoxy tunnels in, 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 when, you, when, you, when you're finally epoxying your, your blank. Yep. Your wraps. Hey, real quick, I'm going to add one note. So if you're, if you're, we're going to post a couple of pictures of a couple of Ritz style grips, including we'll, we'll post a picture of one of Herb's in the link in the description of the podcast. But if you subscribe to Rodmaker Magazine, there was actually a template and sizing instructions for uh, a Ritz style grip in volume eight, issue number two of Rodmaker Magazine. So uh, if you are a, if you are a subscriber and want to get the back issue, that's where it is. Thank you. Is that photo of a of a classical Ritz grip? Just no, it's a cylinders wide at top, narrow at the bottom. Did it have a flare in it? Do you know? I found one of each. Okay. I'll I'll send you what I've got, and you can you can tell me. I, but I'd love to just get a photo of some of yours, and I think I have some photos of some of yours somewhere that you sent me back when you were doing testing on the RSA. But I'll I'll let you know. Okay. When you're filling the tunnels on your. Uh, your Fuji K guides, the double foot guides. Yep. And, uh, and he's referring to when you wrap the thread over these guides that have larger guides that have larger feet, there's a tunnel of air that it, where the thread is touching neither the 
the foot of the guide nor the blank. And it's important that you get that full of epoxy when you're putting your finish on. And everyone, as far as I know, simply applies epoxy to the, to the top of the, of the, of the wrap and let it sink in. Right. Uh, I don't think you can rely on that because I've done destructive tests where the epoxy sometimes does not migrate underneath the foot and you want right. to stabilize the, the foot of that, of that Fuji guide. Yeah. So the first thing that I do, I, I don't start epoxying at all. The first thing I do is I take a, a little bodkin and I drop some drops of, of, of thread finishing epoxy at the opening, mm -hmm. all four, each side of the, of the, of the, of the foot. Okay. There's, there's four openings on each. On, on each a double foot. foot guide. That's right. Yep. Okay. So I, I apply epoxy and then it uh, will wick all the way to the end of the foot and totally fill that void. Mm -hmm. But you have to keep, you have to keep adding epoxy. You, you need always need a pool of epoxy at the opening to that, that tunnel. If you allow it to, to, to wick in and, and, and be dry. It won't wick, wick anymore. Up. Yeah. You're gonna okay. wick, well, that's right. You're going to wick a bubble into there. Yep. So you want to keep a, a, a generous dose of, of epoxy at the opening. I also do it on my running guides. It doesn't take okay. as much, doesn't take as long. Sure, sure. But you'll it's, you'll be surprising how fast it, it moves. It takes some time, maybe 10 minutes, but it will gradually wick all of your epoxy to the very end of the guide foot. Now you can be sure that that guide foot is totally stabilized. That's a good that's a good tip. I've not heard that one before. And uh there will be some unwanted or excess epoxy at the opening when it's all finished. So use uh, wax-free dental floss to remove that. And you'll, you, you, if it's a small guide, you'll probably need a, a dental floss threader to get that in there. Okay. Did we talk about line speed the last time? A little bit, but we accidentally sort of glossed over some of what you were talking about, about the length of the lever and the speed. I think it's useful. Okay. Uh, Line speed is probably your biggest friend to cast distance and small loops. Mm -hmm. And line speed is a function of, of two things, uh, how fast you move the rod, how fast your stroke is, and the recovery rate of your blank. Right. And the recovery rate is how fast your rod straightens after being flexed. And of course, that's a function of the modulus of the graphite that the right. building uses. Right. Uh, so the higher the modulus, the faster that rod is going to rebound to the to the to the original position, which is which is your recovery rate. Right. And that's where cost enters the picture. You're not going to be able to buy a two hundred dollar fly rod and have it be made out of high modulus. Right. Uh, graphite now CTS, as you know, uses fifty seven. 50,000 MSI mm -hmm. uh, modulus. The guides that I use on my fly rods, because I'm fishing only salt water, are only titanium, only titanium with torsite rings. Yep. Uh, I want lightness, and I don't want I want durability. I don't want stains on my on my wraps. Even if you get a stainless steel guide that's been chromed and you don't prep the feet, so it's purely chromed. If you don't if you aren't meticulous in cleaning your guides, you're going to get staining. Yeah, eventually, right. I don't know how you feel about this, but my when my wife sees the the Fuji K guides, the little Fuji K guides, she thinks that my wife is a is a beater. She she sells jewelry. She makes jewelry. Oh, okay, yeah. Jewelry. 
and she appreciates that stuff. She she thinks that they but they look like little pieces of jewelry. No, they they do. You ought to, and they are at least as meticulous making them as uh, as jewelers are in making their pieces. So yeah, um, yeah. well, I, I've tried the 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 the, the lesser cost guide just for the hell of it. I've tried it, and they uh, I found some cracks in the in the in the in the in the ceramics, mm -hmm. and that's death for your for your fly line. Yep, for any line. Yeah, very interesting. I've had the benefit of seeing a bunch of herbs rods and y'all probably haven't, you can go look them up now, but uh, he builds a very clean, obviously, as you can tell, very meticulously crafted rod. Herb, you also, you go to great lengths. If we move up the rod now, uh, I've learned a lot from you and, and we've talked about this. We recently had some uh, R and D engineers from Sage on talking about the process for designing fly rod blanks and they talked about how how critical weight is especially as you progress towards the tip of the rod you do a lot of things and pay a lot of attention to reducing weight on the tip section especially the tip section but the whole uh length of your build talk to me about that because you're you're really specific with the guides you use you're very specific with even the thread you use and the length of your wraps can you talk about that a little bit sure and, and it's also paint if you want to talk about weight sure Let's paint does weigh something. Right. And uh, I think I told you that uh, uh, an, F an FSA five weight was ruined by, uh, by, by painting it white and yeah. white is terrible color because it's very heavy with clay anyway. <clears throat> so paint does weigh something. Yeah. You don't have to be too critical with weight with, with the, the, the stripper guide or the second or the third. So for those, I use the, the Fuji K guides Mm -hmm. uh, if, if it was a, a nine weight or a 10 weight, I'll use a, a, a number 20 and mm -hmm. down to a 16 and then down to a 12, okay. maybe even to a 10. I used to go, some people only go one, one, one ceramic guide and then the rest wire. Uh, lately, I've been doing uh, three or four ceramic guides. So it would okay. be a Fuji 20, 16, uh, 12, 10, or from the 12 or from the 16, you can go to a 10. Okay. But then for the, then for the, 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 the guides, the running guides, I like uh, REC recoil guides. Yep. You use the single foots, right? I use I use the single foot. Okay. And I use the I use the uh, the REC recoil tip top. Mm -hmm. And uh, the wraps uh, are as short. I, I start at the very foot of the of the guide. <clears throat> I don't go any further. And I use double or thread for the runners. Right. So for those of you who don't know double lot thread, that's a size smaller than A. Right. And and again, like we were talking about, there's no standardization of action terms and everything else. One one manufacturer's A is not the same as another manufacturer's A, et cetera. But when he, when Herb says double lot thread, uh, he's meaning a finer size, a smaller diameter thread than A, which is plenty strong enough because the strength comes from the number of thread wraps you get on the foot not just the absolute strength of the thread. Um, these are plenty strong enough for even really big saltwater fish and heavy shooting heads and, and rough wading conditions and everything else. But it's amazing, Herb, that when you pay that much attention to the weight of your guide train, you use the right number of guides, not too many, not too few. Use single foots wherever you can and keep those wraps really short with that fine thread and then also keeping your your finish coats appropriately light right it makes a Correct. huge difference i remember when i was first getting to know herb and and this is back dozens and dozens of cts blanks that i've ordered from you ago 
and I was debating whether to get it painted or what the, what they call the P2000 finish, which is just kind of a plain polished matte, not exactly matte. It's just a clear uncoated finish, right? It's kind of the blank right. in the raw in its lightest, strongest, purest form. And I was debating about getting paint and you're like, Oh no, I don't get paint. And I remember thinking, man, paint can't make that much of a difference. But if you start paying attention to all these little things, and if you minimize weight on your guides, you minimize weight on your wraps, minimize weight on your finish, you get a rod and you mentioned Chico putting one of your rods in his hands, a much heavier weight rod and, and having it feel so alive compared to his your 10 weight felt light in hand compared to the eight weight well this is what you get if you pay a lot of attention to all these yeah. details and are meticulous the whole way right and when i build a rod for chico believe it or not i have to trim off the the back part of the uh the real seat yeah just to even get more weight reduction yeah, yeah. so yeah. Yeah. it's fascinating so again horses for courses it's your rod build it however you want to but in the hands of someone like chico fernandez who's a renowned caster and angler right he can tell the difference in in that amount of weight and he can get the performance out of reducing uh, a weight that much so uh, again is it really meticulous and really detailed yes but don't think that it's uh there, there's science there it's all backed by science and physics right uh and it and it actually works so uh, you know I, I wanted thank you so much for sharing that stuff Herb. i really wanted to share it with everybody because i think there's some really practical tips in there the neoprene rings is a brilliant one uh, it's changed the way i do my fly rod guide spacing and my non-fly rod guide spacing and it's very fast and very efficient which is nice and, and, you know, not everybody can afford, I love a Renzetti lathe and I'm a huge fan. I own several of them, a few of them, I should say. And I'm, I, I love them, but it's expensive. You know, if you, if you are clever and thoughtful and detail oriented in how you're setting this up, you can buy one of these very reasonably priced cork lathes from Flexcoat, buy your own drill as your power unit. And you can build, you can build rods just as beautiful as Herb's building to, with with the grips built the strongest possible way shaped right on the rod um that's accessible that's that's within reach uh for anybody or or even if that's too much you can home make your own uh drill cork lathe but um it's uh it, it's fascinating to me how you've arrived at this kind of independent way of doing things um and again the results speak for themselves yeah you can uh, you can turn some very very hard wood i there's a, a guy uh out west the name is Mike Stabilized Wood International. Yeah, Mike uh, Ludeman. Yeah, I know him well. Yeah. Oh, okay. He WSSI. Has some, yes, yeah, he, he made beautiful, beautiful wood. wood. Yeah, we Andy yeah, Deer and I were talking about him on the podcast episode that Andy was on. I, Mike was the first one that I remember coming to the rod shows with these beautiful stabilized woods and um, and double-dyed stabilized woods. And I think they're still out there. It's Wood Stabilizing Specialist Inc., WSSI. But um, yeah, keep going. Sorry, Herb. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, this this uh, flex coat cork lathe can turn that uh, that stuff because it turns at 2,500 RPM. Yep. <laughs> the drill turns 2,500 RPM. Right. Uh, I bought some some ebony, lane, mm. two, two, two or three lengths of, of, of ebony wood, not from, yep. not from Mike, but I wanted him to stabilize it for me. He says, it'll probably be too wet. Keep it under your bed, wrap the newspaper for two years. Keep changing the newspaper. Believe this? Keep changing the newspaper, wrap it under the bed. My wife was furious. Keep it under your bed. <laughs> and then and then after two years, you can send it to me, which I did. Oh. I ended up giving it to him, except for one short length that I used, because uh, I don't do that anymore. It's just too arduous, too arduous to, yeah. uh, to, to do that stuff. Yeah. Um, 
and they're heavy. Yeah, but they're pretty, right? They're pretty. They're gorgeous. They're yeah. gorgeous. Uh, do you want to talk about the lazy man's way to to mix epoxy? Absolutely. Can we? we well, I'm 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 slow. I'm okay. very slow. With my epoxy. I want it because I want it done nicely. So, so see, I don't I, think this is the lazy way. I think this is an ingenious way. And I've heard I heard this tip from somebody years and years ago. I mean, I'm talking almost 30 years ago. And I thought it was bunk. I, I thought it was somebody theorizing that this might work, but you actually do it, right? So this is a very unique way. As Herb's saying, he likes to, he's very meticulous with his finish, just enough finish, not too much. And he likes to go slow and carefully guide wrap by wrap to do that. And you've you've devised an ingenious way to extend the utility of your epoxy. The, the epoxy that the rest of us are throwing away, you're actually able to get use out of. So tell us about that, Herb. Well, I, like I said, I've been using epoxy probably 50 years on boats and things like that. Right. And I, I even used it uh, to uh, to uh, epoxy studs to uh, to secure hurricane shutters in my balcony mm. here in, 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 in Florida. OK. And it's uh, it's hot and you have yeah. to you have to because the, the epoxy will cure very quickly. In the yeah, heat. it's an exothermic reaction. It goes. It's yeah. very temperature so sensitive. I, yeah. so I, I, I use ice. Uh, to cool down the epoxy, so I figured with 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 the rod building, why not put it in the freezer? So I mix up whatever epoxy I need, and I, I make little trays out of aluminum foil, uh-huh. and I put nickel or dime size uh, uh, deposits on each tray, and I put it in the freezer. And I can have lunch. I can go to the bathroom. I can wait till the next day and use the epoxy. So, so talk to me about this. So, I want to make sure I understand this because this is fascinating to me. Do you do you disclose what epoxy you use, or do you keep? I use Threadmaster. Okay, so you're taking, you're mixing. I don't know a couple of cc's of each part of Threadmaster. Correct. And then once you've got it mixed, you're pouring it out into these little aluminum foil plates or containers that you've made. Yeah, and you're putting from Reynolds wrap. I just tore yeah. off the cut. Yeah. Yeah. And you're putting all of those in your freezer. Correct. And then when you're ready to use it, how you pull it out and how long do you let it warm up before you start using it? Or or what is there any warm up well, step? It or? takes it takes it takes about 20 seconds for it to be soft enough to use. Okay. So it's quick? Yeah. Yeah. It's a little it's a little thicker than you want it, but remember now it's gonna get thinner, not thicker as right. you go. So right. so I put it on and it's uh after it hits the the warm wrap, it just it just goes. Interesting. And I wouldn't I I wouldn't do it any other way. I've never had. I've used a lot of different epoxies. Never had an issue. I've never. I got to be honest. I've never tried it. Like I said, I've heard that that is possible. I, someone told me that a long time ago at like a rod crafters event, and I I, I thought he was kind of I, I I didn't take it as the truth. I thought he was maybe messing with me, and I've never tried it. But I'm gonna try it now. Well, I've seen you work, and you're meticulous, but you're fast. Well. Well, but I had to learn to be fast because of the, how fast the epoxy sets, yeah, right? Like you're I trying didn't to want to learn to be fast. <laughs> <laughs> well, why work harder when you can work smarter? That's the difference yeah, between yeah, you and me. Yeah, I, yeah. You're working smarter. That's fascinating. And don't forget, my 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 guides are much smaller than your guides. Yeah, often, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and mean, so you're, you're putting on a lot of epoxy mm-hmm. on on a guide. Mm-hmm. And so you're basically using mostly two very thin coats, right? Just enough to saturate the wraps and displace any air beside the guide foot and just enough well, to kind well, of cover know, the thread I, I, ridges? I have, or... num- I have a number of things going. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll start to – I'll put it on, 
I'm using uh, uh, Flexcode's 200 RPM motor. Yep, yep. It doesn't have to be 200. It may be, I'm not counting. It could be 100, could be 150, could be 75. It's fast. Right. And I put it on thick on all of them. Mm-hmm. And, and then I and then after 10 minutes, I go back and I take it off with a dryish, dryish brush. Okay. So I'm left with epoxy that's sunk into the to the to the thread wraps, but I can still see the threads. Yep. And then after that's tacky, uh, I then put on the final coat. Uh, you have to be careful that you don't paint it on because your 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 brush will stick to the to the tacky windings. You don't right. want to do that. You right. just want to touch it. Only or, putting epoxy, not contacting it with the brush. Yeah. Yep. Or I'll see how it goes. If I'm putting on epoxy and it looks good to me and it's the first coat, I'll just leave it. Yeah. And then uh, either remove it or add more to it. As as you get out to the end of the fly rod, I don't want I don't want bulgings out there. So right. I, tend to, I tend to thin it down as much. Thin it down, not not I don't mean with solvent. Right. But I thin down the epoxy. Light, uh, light as possible yeah. coats. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. To protect the wraps. Yeah. No, it's fascinating. And of course, I've got slip clutches so that I can mm-hmm. I can stop that. Yep. Outstanding. That's fascinating. So you talked a little bit about, and I, and I know we're sort of going in the weeds here, but this is fascinating to me and you've got so much expertise to share. We talked a little bit about the stripper rod, the stripping guides that you'd often use a 20, a 16, a 12, or maybe even a 10. And you've gone more using maybe even as many as three ceramic ring stripping guides these days. Talk to me about the what size single foot REC guides you like it for your running guides on these, on these rods? How small are you going for these eight, nine, 10 weight rods? And are you using the large loop tip top or the a four? Okay. So pretty, pretty big guides. Yeah. Yeah. There were a lot, there's this small, large and extra large, the tip top. I just mm-hmm. go the extra large, just the large. Okay. And four on the, uh, on the, on the running guys. I've gone as, as low as three to see if there's any difference. Yeah. Uh, there's not. If, the, if you have a small, I'd rather have a four on there. Yeah. To pass knots and heads and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. 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 And and by virtue of their construction, they, they don't weigh much different. Ceramic green guides often with the frame and the ring, they're going to weigh one size larger will weigh a lot more than the, the size smaller than it. But with these, with the way uh, these nickel titanium alloy recoil guides that REC has, the single foots, the weight doesn't change that much between some sizes. They do, Herb, make a kind of a regular freshwater weight and and one they sell as like a heavy duty or a more of a saltwater guide. Are you using that bigger, heavier one or are you using just the standard REC recoils? No, I'm only using the X. The, the, X. the extra heavy. Okay. All right. I, yeah. I assume so, but I didn't, I wanted to ask. Yeah. Unless I'm unless I'm building a zero weight rod, I wouldn't go to the light the yeah. light ones. Agreed. Yeah, uh, excellent. I got friendly with uh, Paul Arden from mm-hmm. uh, XE Loops. Mm-hmm. He's convinced, and and I can hear it. He's convinced that the uh, the REC uh, snake guides, the double footed guides, the snake guides, generate a sympathetic uh, uh, vibration that might mm-hmm. affect the casting. So he only uses uh, single foots now. At least the last time I spoke to him, he only used single foot. Interesting. I don't know about that, but I'm I am able to discern that if I use a single foot, it's only one wrap, not two. And that's half as much oh, okay. thread, half as much epoxy, okay. right? Yeah. yeah so yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm with you. I'm with you. That's interesting, though. Um, we we may have to get him on and and let him educate us on that. I'm fascinated by that kind of stuff. Yeah. I've actually bought one of his blanks. I bought an eight weight to compare it to the CTS blanks. Yeah, I do that a lot. Yeah, uh, I'll buy different people's blanks to just to compare it to. Sure. Uh, 
I would say that that his is the best that I've had. I didn't buy the factory. He's, he sent me, he sold me a blank mm. and I built it myself to, to, yeah. to my specs. Yeah. And uh, it's a good blank. Yeah, that's good. Okay. Um, so, so we've talked now about power. We've talked about linked. We've talked about action. So if I sort of put you on the spot and said, hey, her best stripe uh, fly rod for striped bass what and i said help me pick the best or build the best fly rod for striped bass what would you recommend well first you have to back up a little bit and realize what environment you're going to be fishing in sure uh you're going to be fishing surf mm -hmm. uh deep water i'm, I'm mm -hmm. not at the same time but you know right. it's at one point you don't want mm -hmm. to keep switching rods right uh you're gonna be fishing in heavy current yep you're gonna be fishing in wind you can be fishing large flies sometimes. Yep. And you got the size of the fish. Now, yep. if you're fishing the surf, I don't know if you've ever fished the surf with a fly rod. Oh, sure. Quite a bit on the on the Gulf yeah. Coast. Not for striped bass, but more for uh, you know, pompano, redfish, speckled trout, uh, whiting, that kind of thing. Okay. But but if you're on the East Coast and you've and you've got a, a striper in a in in the surf, you can't unplug him from that surf. Yeah, he's he has a monstrous tail, yep. and he knows how to use his body. Yep. And you can't you have to wait and 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 surf him out on the, on the on the waves. Yeah. If you don't have a rod that can do that, you're never going to bring him in, and he's, yeah. you're going to kill the fish. Yep. Uh, deep water. I fish with a, a, a great guide, probably one of the best now on Cape Cod, called Tony Bisky. Tony Bisky. Okay. Tony runs a, a 23 foot boat. Out of, out of Cape Cod, he take me out to the uh, to the Monomoy rips. Okay, they have like three or four different rips out there, and you're fishing in when you when I say rips, you've got waves in those rips. You're out there in the boat, and there are two foot waves, three foot waves in the on the rip. If you're off the rip, it's quiet. It's down about thirty feet. Yeah. So if I hook into and I sent you a picture of the biggest bass that I caught on the rips, I caught that fish or any fish. By the time you you loaded that fish, you're a quarter of a mile away. So you're in tremendous current, you're yeah. in deep water. You've got yep. to pump that fish up. Yeah. You can't do it with it with a with a with a wimpy rod. You need you need you need serious butt to yeah. get a size fly also. You need a, a a serious rod to cast an eight-inch mackerel fly. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that's the thing that's so interesting. And I'll add this because we may have listeners that are kind of shaking their heads while Herb's talking about these powerful fish and these in the surf and in the currents and everything. One of the things that's interesting about the striped bass, maroon, saxitalis, is that it can exist in freshwater or saltwater, right? Although it is originally a saltwater fish. So there's a number of us that have had broad exposure to these fish as freshwater fish in still water and i can tell you it's a different animal right i can tell you that these seagoing fish that live in these conditions and that's not to there's no disrespect at all to i've caught some 20 plus pound fish on top waters uh and poppers and things on, in lake washita in uh arkansas and caught fish over 30 pounds out of lake texhoma you know on the texas oklahoma border like they're fun fish it's a great sport fish but I had grown up catching them freshwater until actually I got stuck on Manhattan Island when 9-11 happened. I was working up there and I got stuck and they closed the bridges and tunnels and we couldn't get out. And me and a coworker named Steve Norris went to the Orvis store in Midtown Manhattan. And we're like, we're stuck on the island. Like, do you guys have any any guides or anything available? And they said, actually, we do because nobody can get here. And so we he and I went out and fished striped 
fish fly fish for striped bass in Jamaica Bay with a Orvis endorsed guide named Captain Dino Torino. And we were literally fishing at times in the shadow of the Statue of Liberty. And I had never caught a saltwater striper. I'd caught lots of stripers. And man, was I surprised when I hooked into that first one and, you know, get the, I'm thinking, oh, this is 20 pound fish. This is 20 pound fish. You get it to the boat. It's about a six pound fish, right? right but right, they're right. just it, the sea, the sea run version, the, as they were originally intended to be before they got kind of watered down and put in freshwater. These are powerful fish. And like Herb mentioned, they have a really big square tail. Um, so if you've caught some freshwater stripers and you're kind of listening to Herb and, and, and wondering if he's exaggerating a little bit, if you haven't caught one in the surf, in the rips, in the current, then in this cold, upper east coast water you don't know what you're talking about because it's a different animal yeah they have beautiful fit they're, in my in my estimation there are only there are only three fish striper redfish and snook well i don't I, even include topping i don't i don't care for topping okay man we're going to start a debate right there there's going to be a war in the comments based on these are the only three fish okay. but for for my part i'll tell you i think you've made three excellent choices and i i support it wholeheartedly so one of the things that's interesting, we we try to kind of appeal broadly on this podcast, Herb, and, and you know, obviously we're going to have some rod building anglers uh, looking to learn about building the ultimate striped bass fly rod. But we also have often anglers that are not rod builders that are just looking to learn and try to get informed on that, too. So obviously, if you're not a rod builder and you're interested in uh, an outstanding striped bass rod, fly rod for striped bass you can you can reach out to herb and he'll build you one or find another uh find another custom builder but can we talk a little bit about factory rods what if somebody said hey i'm not a builder i don't want to mess with the builder i don't have time to wait whatever it is um t talk to me about the factory rods that that you'd feel pretty good about recommending if you don't mind yeah but the first one i would choose of course is sage okay yep. uh, people give <clears throat> sage they give it a bad rap because they keep changing their models Right. I guess they keep changing their prices too, but they keep changing them <laughs> to encourage the guys who don't build to buy right. more rods. Right. But to be fair, Stephen Pratt tweaks his rods a couple of times a year. Yeah. His materials or his designs or his tapers or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. So you don't see it reflected there because he doesn't change the models. Yeah. But it, but but so I would I would I would choose Sage. If I were to buy a rod, it would be Sage. It would yeah. probably be the Sage Igniter. Okay. Um, because I, I think I've, I, I've never casted one, but from my buddies say, and from what I see about the, uh, the deflection, mm -hmm. I think it, it most replicates my FSA. Yeah. Okay. Um, you can, you can get a straight line, straight line path of the tip. It's not, it's not a, it's not a fast rod. It's a moderate action rod. But again, when I say moderate, I don't, I'm not talking power now. I'm right. just talking action. Action. It's a right. very, very powerful rod. Excellent. But, but it's, but it's a thousand dollars. Yeah, uh, if you can't, then the uh, the the, the uh, Temple Fork. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of good, a lot of my good friends, a lot of good casters have have Temple Forks. They love them. Yep. Um, and uh, uh, Tim Rajeff makes an honest product out of Echo. Yep. Yep. So those are those are the rods. There's there's one company that uh, that I never heard of before, out of uh, Scotland. <laughs> Uh, they, they're built in, in in Vietnam. Vietnam builds some pretty good rods. Mm -hmm. Let me just find the name of it. Ren is the model. Rem is the, uh, the the name of the firm. You have given us a definitive guide, Herb. Thank you very much to single-handed 
fly rods for saltwater and striped bass fly fishing. But I, I want to ask just because partially because you, you mentioned it as we were preparing for this podcast and also because we we continue to see the expansion of two-handed rods and switch rods and things like this. Do you have an opinion about two-handed rods for saltwater and striped bass fly casting? Yes. Um, I've been developing two-handed rods for stripers or beach fishing. Really? For the last 10 years. Okay. Uh, I started I started at 11 feet and went up. Uh, my buddy in the UK, uh, uh, Mike Oliver, he started at 14 feet and wow. came down. Okay. So he developed this 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 taper, this this blank. By the way, the ideal two-handed rod should act like a single-hand rod. Okay. It's very difficult to do. The the, the builders, the, the manufacturers don't want to do it because the market's not there. The market yeah. is growing though. But people who wanted two-handed rods had to go to spay rods. Right. Spay rods are, are rods that's used for, for water loading, spay casting. Right. They're, they're very soft. They're more regressive than they are progressive. Mm-hmm. And um, they just don't apply for overhead casting at all. Right. So I started to develop this also with switch rods with not a lot of luck. Uh, not a lot of luck, meaning they're pleasant to use, yeah. but they're a hybrid. They're neither here nor there. They, they, you can do anchor, anchor point casting with them, or you can do overhead casting with them, but they don't do either very, very, very well. Mm. So Mike developed this serendipitous because it was just by accident. He found this taper that he had made, and that is the go-to rod on Cape Cod now, his, his blank. Interesting. I, 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 it, it's too heavy for me. I like a lighter rod. So I had CTS build me their DQ model, which is a spay rod. Uh-huh. But on steroids, the, the normal spay <laughs> rod might be a five or a six. Uh, six or seven would be a very heavy spay rod. I had not build it at 11, 12. Wow. And I can throw overhand uh, well over 100 feet with a 600-grain line, 500-grain line, 550, 600. I just For sold those of that you rod. who are listening and don't have video, my jaw just dropped. I'm in awe. Yeah, now I, I don't have to cast 120 feet. I don't have to cast 130 feet because you have to manage all this line. Right. So this year I had CTS build me an 11-foot DQ, 7.8. As you get shorter, the rods get more powerful. I don't know right. if you realize that. So that 7.8, I used the Rio Outbound 10 on that, 425 grains, and easy 100 feet. It's light. It's 11-foot. It's not 12-and-a-half-foot. It's light in the hand. <clears throat> so... Um, there's plenty of rods out there now, but stay away from spay. Yeah, if you yeah. want, uh, Echo builds a very nice 12-foot, two-handed rod for the surf. Mm. Uh, I mentioned that I buy, sometimes I buy blanks to see how they test versus CTS. Sure. I bought, I bought a Beulah, Beulah sold me one of their blanks. Okay. Uh, it's an 11-foot beach rod. Okay. And I liked it a lot. Yeah, I, I built that, liked it a lot. I like the CTS DQ a little bit better, but the, the Bueller is a very good. So Echo, Echo, uh, Bueller, uh, CTS, if you want to make it yourself, depending on, on the length, uh, 11 foot is, is, is great. Uh, 12 and a half foot, uh, you'd have to go, like I said, on steroids. I don't enjoy two-handed rods. Yeah, so, so I've stayed away from them personally, but I, now you've got me a little bit intrigued. Some people like Mike, although he's getting older now, so his balance is off, but he's about 20 years my junior. Yeah. And, and he used to fish in the surf with a wetsuit. Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, so he doesn't care if he gets a wave over his head. He's right. got his double hander and he doesn't care. 
I can't. I can't be in surf anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Especially not not near the edge that drops off to 50 no, feet in two no, steps. No. Come on. Nor uh, with the white sharks either. Yeah, seriously. Like that uh, that changes the value proposition a little yeah. bit, doesn't it? My son says if you're in over your ankle, you're part of the food chain. <laughs> hey, I, I'm not saying he's wrong. Oh, man. Well, man, that Herb, that is a host of wonderful information about action, link, power, lines, rigging, and some unbelievable rod building tips for how to how to build a rod absolutely the world-class best possible way. I can't thank you enough for your time. You've been a very informative guest, and I appreciate all your preparation. And uh, thank you so much for, for joining us on the Mastering Rod Building Podcast. Yeah, Bill, thank you for this opportunity. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. So if you're interested in getting in touch with Herb, we'll post his email and we'll also post a link to CTS. If you've never tried these, I describe them as kind of like Formula One race cars. They are just uh, absolutely phenomenal, phenomenal blanks. If you're interested and you're thinking about trying it, I would send Herb an email. He's is a pleasure to work with and uh, they're, they're absolutely spectacular products. So Herb, tight lines i hope you uh go get on some big stripers and consider this your standing invitation to come fishing in alabama thank you very much all right talk soon thanks so much for joining us on the mastering rod building podcast please like download and subscribe wherever you get your podcast content we'll see you next week thanks that's going to wrap it up for this week but if you'd like to be notified as soon as all new podcasts are released just text the word fishing to 587-317-6099 we'll add you to our email list so you can stay up to date thanks for listening